Well, good morning. My name is Nicholas Piotrowski. I'm the president of Indianapolis Theological Seminary. I recognize several of you from uh, the other couple times I've preached here before. I think every time I've preached here, it's been on the Gospel of Mark, <laughs> which, is, which is great. I, I love the Gospel of Mark, and I love preaching here because I've known this congregation to be attentive, eager students of the Word of God. And so if you have a copy of the Word of God, go ahead and turn there. Uh, you'll be helped because uh, nearly everything I say will come from the details of Mark chapter 13. And I'll also flip back to Daniel 7 for a minute, flip ahead to something else. So you'll be helped if you can follow me along through the pages of your Bible. Typically when I speak somewhere, uh, it's because the pastor is on sabbatical or, or, or vacation, wherever Scott is. I didn't ask where he is. Uh, and then I, I say, well, what, what would you like me to speak on? What, what would you like the sermon to be about? And 19 times out of 20, they say, whatever God lays on your heart, which is great, because God commonly lays much on my heart, so I have a lot to choose from, or I can preach from. Uh, this time, however, he said, Mark 13, which, if you've read Mark 13 recently, you may know it as one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible. <laughs> and so I said, Scott is so clever. It's not, it, but it's not only difficult, it's also controversial. We'll, we'll see in just a moment that there are many different interpretations of Mark 13. Jesus is intentionally being opaque for certain reasons, which I'll try to explain. Um, but that has led to different interpretations. And some people get quite riled up about their interpretation of Mark 13. So it's also a very dangerous passage to preach. Uh, so I figured, yeah, that's a great idea. Assign it to the visiting, visiting preacher. All he has to do is make it back to his car. Uh, and then if I say something you don't like, you can't blame Scott, right? You can't blame Scott. So let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 13, and then we'll pray again, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us. This is Mark 13, and I will be reading only through verse 27. So Mark 13, beginning in verse 1 through 27. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, 
and father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infant in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray. If possible, the elect, be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus, we, your people, are eager to listen and to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, your voice, speaking to us, calling to us, exhorting us, challenging us, comforting us, guiding us by your word. We confess all the same that sometimes our ears are dull and hard of hearing, so we ask, indeed, for the help of your Holy Spirit to open up our ears, to understand, to open up our eyes, to perceive wonderful things in your word, that we may be changed, that you may be exalted and glorified in our hearts and in our lives, and that our neighbors would be impacted. Indeed, that the nations would be impacted, because we, your people, are eager as well to speak the gospel on your behalf. We pray all these things, therefore, in your matchless name, as we give ourselves to your word. Amen and amen. You can see the difficulties, I'm sure, in reading this passage. When I was uh, exactly half the age I am now, I was thinking about this, exactly half the age I am now, I read a book by R.C. Sproul called The Last Days According to Jesus. I was interested in this book simply because of the title. This is a great title. There's so much controversy about the last days, the end times. You want to hear it straight from Jesus' mouth, right? And so The Last Days According to Jesus sold me on that book. And I read it. It's about Mark 13. It's about this specific passage. Uh, and I was very much challenged by it, edified by it. I learned a lot. And I was reading it one day, uh, and a friend saw me reading it, and he said, you enjoying that book? I said, I sure am. I'm learning a lot from R.C. Sproul here, The Last Days According to Jesus. And he said, well, you need to read this book. And he gave me The Second Coming by John MacArthur. And everything I thought I understood, John MacArthur said the exact opposite. It was also on Mark 13. And so all this clarity I thought I had from reading the one book, 
completely thrown up in the air by reading the other. What were these books about? The Last Days According to Jesus, the first one I was reading, makes the case that Mark 13 is entirely about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70. In the year 70 A.D., the Romans brought a huge military under the general Titus to Jerusalem. They laid siege to the city, and they literally raised it to the ground. Not one stone was left upon another. The temple in Jerusalem that Herod built was so massive, and the stones were so big. In fact, you can still see the stones today. They have tunnels under Jerusalem. You can go down and see how huge these stones were. Titus took pride in that because they were so big, he wanted to remove every single one so that he could say nothing stood in his army's way of leveling the entire city, let alone the temple of Jerusalem, and that happened in 70 A.D., 70 A.D. And Sproul makes the point based on verse 2. Mark 13, verse 2, Jesus says specifically, this is how it all begins, the whole conversation begins like this, do you see these great buildings? There will not be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So it sure sounds very convincing that the ensuing discourse is about that episode. Jesus is foretelling that about 40 years after his life. Jesus is saying this somewhere in the early 30s, and that happens 40 approximately years later. MacArthur, on the other hand, makes the case that Jesus is actually talking about the future. Not the past, but the future. The actual end of the world. For this, he turns specifically to verses 24 and following. Look at those again. But in those days, after that tribulation, listen to this, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory and power. The Christian tradition is clear that when Jesus returns, he'll be coming on the clouds of heaven. You can read about this in the book of Revelation in particular, also in 1 Thessalonians. And so Jesus is not talking about 70 A.D., but the end of the world. And I'm pretty sure in 70 A.D., the world did not end. So depending on whether you think this is about the past, 70 A.D., or the future will greatly determine which direction you take Mark chapter 13. Others throughout church history have had an idealized reading of this chapter, an idealized, meaning that Jesus is speaking in these general terms to describe the church age. He's describing the church age and the experience of the church in the world as it tries to witness for Jesus and be persecuted. So if you look at verses 9 and 10, you can see where Jesus says, uh, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So this passage is about evangelism, and in verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. So Jesus is really describing the entire church age and how Christians will get along in the world, be persecuted nonetheless by the world as they speak on behalf of Jesus. So what's the answer? Is it about the past, or the present, or the future? Well, take a look at a basic summary of this chapter. Here's the basic summary. If we can get past all the controversy and all the different interpretations, the basic chapter uh, follows in this, this outline. 
Verses 1 and 2, Jesus predicts the temple will be destroyed. It's clear that that's what he's talking about. He's actually been talking about the temple many times in his last week in Jerusalem. So he's predicting the destruction of the temple. And the leading question then that sets Jesus off is in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to him and they say, tell us, when will these things be? That's the question. The question is, Jesus, when? We heard what you said. The temple will be destroyed, and now we're asking you when, and then equally, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So those are the two questions. When will it happen, and what will be the sign right before it happens? Right before it happens. And then in verses 5 and following, Jesus talks about the great trials and difficulties leading up to these days and how his own followers will be deceived by false messiahs. There will be wars, earthquakes, famines. Uh, Christians will be arrested and persecuted. And in verse 19, he says, In those days there will be such tribulation as had not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. It's a terrible time of suffering and tribulation. So the temple will be destroyed. The disciples ask when and what's the sign. Jesus goes into a lengthy description of the experience of Christians in, in tribulation and wars and potential deception and earthquakes and famines. However, there is, an, there is a constant refrain that, Jesus, that, that God himself will preserve his elect through this season. Look at verse 13. You will be hated by all for my sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the point that Jesus will make in the next two verses is that he will make sure that those who are truly his will be preserved. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So those who persevere to the end are the elect that God preserves through this season so that they will be saved. And verse 22, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So the temple is going to be destroyed. When will this happen? What are the signs the disciples ask? He goes on this lengthy discussion of the trials that Christians will face in the world, but God has his own numbered selected, known, chosen to preserve them through the difficulty that will come by witnessing for them. And that's the reason. They have a mission. The followers of Jesus Christ have a mission. Look again at verse 10. The gospel must be preached to all nations. And then equally... Yeah, that, and, and verse, verse 9 before that also goes on uh, that same emphasis. So what I want to do this morning, in the time I have left, is really emphasize those last two points. That throughout this discourse, what really rises to the top is that Christians will face trials in this world specifically because of their testimony of Jesus Christ. Everybody in this world faces trials and difficulties, health, economic family loss, friend loss, job insecurities, all kinds of difficulties in this world simply because we live in a fallen world. However, Christians are singled out a little bit more 
by the devil because we bear testimony to Jesus Christ. And it's that kind of trial and difficulty Jesus wants to prepare his people for, but then equally reinforce for them that in that season of trial and difficulty, God will preserve his people. God will preserve his people. Now to get at this, we have to rewind the clock a little bit and ask the question, what, what is this passage actually about? Is it about the temple? Verse 2, you see these great buildings, not one stone will be left off of another. Is it about the end of the world? Verse 24 and following, sun is darkened, stars are falling from the sky. Well, there's a third option. Jesus is actually talking about himself. He's talking about the cross. The cross is the greatest tribulation that has ever been and ever will be. The cross is the moment from the beginning of world history that all things have been building up to, defines the meaning of world history, and from which all things descend down from. Here's what I mean. Take a look again at verse 4. And remember, the question is, when will these, will, when will these things be? And what is the sign? Those are the two questions Jesus is answering throughout the rest of the chapter. If you go now to verse 32, which I don't know if we have it on the screen or not, but, but you can follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read a little bit more from Mark 13. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. So there's your answer to the question. Peter, John, James, and so forth. No one knows. When, when will these end? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So his application then is, be on your guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Since you don't know, stay awake. Watch out. Be on your guard. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at the midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and you find he find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Or your translation might say, watch. Stay awake and watch. So to recap, no one knows the day or hour, verse 32, therefore watch, do not sleep. No one knows the day or hour, therefore watch, do not sleep. In chapter 14, Jesus is arrested. Here is how Mark describes the arrest of Jesus. So right before he goes to trial and to the cross, this is what leads up to that. 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, three of the people who asked the question, by the way, the original question, that's three of them. 
and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Same word from the end of chapter 13. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Same word, the hour. Jesus said no one knows the hour. But now he says, here comes the hour. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. You see that? The disciples are already not doing what he just told them to do because of the encroaching hour of tribulation. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? The, the language of chapter 13 is, is right here in Jesus' final moment of distress. Verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he said, he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? Now listen to this. It is enough. The hour has come. The hour has come. You were asking about the hour. Here it comes. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and scribes and elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one whom I kiss, it is him. Do you understand what's going on here? In Mark 13, the language is intentionally opaque. It's intentionally vague around the periphery so that you, the reader and the disciples who are there that night are invited to lean in and say, what is he talking about? What does that mean? And then only one chapter later Mark the writer and Jesus demonstrate what he's actually talking about. Were you talking about the temple, Jesus? Or were you talking about the end of the world? Or were you talking about, lo and behold, he's talking about his own cross and resurrection. You will remember back in Mark 13, it said, in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. In chapter 15, verse 33, at the moment of Jesus' death, it was the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land. And at that moment, verse 38, when Jesus dies, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's going on here? What's going on here? Jesus is talking about the temple. Only he's talking about the temple of his own body. In Jerusalem, there was a physical building called the temple. And what happened at that temple? Well, people brought sacrifices so that they could be forgiven of their sins. 
And people also brought their prayers so that they could be heard by God in heaven. Jesus is saying everything that that temple had represented and meant, the forgiveness of sins and the access to heaven through prayer is actually all about me, the Jewish Messiah. I am the true temple. I am the true place of forgiveness and access to God through prayer. And so Mark is theologically aligning the meaning of the physical temple and the meaning of Jesus. So that the destruction of Jesus is the destruction of the true temple. And when the temple gets destroyed historically 40 years later, it's all part of the same theological cloth. Does this make sense? Because, here's the kicker, when the physical temple gets destroyed in 70 AD, it's never rebuilt. To this day, it hasn't been rebuilt. But Jesus' body is what? Raised from the dead. The true temple is destroyed at the cross, and the true temple is brought back to life. And from there, he gathers his people together. How is it then that it sure sounds like in verses 24 and following, he's talking about the end of the world, the heavens and the, the, the moon and the sun and the stars? Well, in Jewish thought, the temple was actually a microcosm of the whole universe. The temple was designed to look like the creation. So you can read about this in the first chapters of 1 King. There's all this verdant imagery of flowers and leaves and peacocks and so forth. And on the temple veil were stars and moon and sun. The reason for that is because it was understood that heaven is above and then is the sky and then there's earth. So the sky separates heaven from earth. Therefore, in the temple, they built a curtain to look like the sky. You follow me? Because on the other side of the veil is the most holy place, the place where God himself lives, and the high priest can enter in there one time a year. What the Jews are trying to, to accomplish in this kind of imagery is to say this. The meaning, the purposes that God has for the universe are captured in the meaning of the temple. Why did God create anything at all? Why is there time and space? Why is there history? Why is there you as a person living in time and space? Because God has intention for, for himself to live with humanity and for us to live with him. That was, after all, was it not, the original goal in the Garden of Eden. But because of sin, we have been kicked out. Therefore, we need sacrifices to get back in. And that's what the temple represents. That God's original purposes in Eden will someday be reaccomplished when the sacrifice is finally made to bring us back into his sacred space. And so the world is represented in the temple and Jesus is the true temple the true dwelling place of God on earth, the true sacrifice 
the true place through which God will hear our prayers. Now, if you're not a believer here today, or even if you are, I want to make this very clear, but particularly I think unbelievers need to hear this. When Christians talk about Jesus, we're not just saying he's like really smart or he's a wonderful religious guru. You know, you got, you got Buddha and you got uh, Muhammad and Gandhi and you got, you got other spiritual guides, right? And Jesus is a little bit better than those guys. And so we, we prefer Jesus. We're not saying that. We're not saying that. We are saying that Jesus is actually in a class by himself. He is sui generis, in a class by himself. That he is God himself come to us in a human life, thereby uniting heaven to earth and humanity to God in himself. He is God with us. And in his death, he has opened up the pathway for us to return to the presence of God. Therefore, through our faith and through our union with Christ, we are actually already seated with him in the heavenly places. We are reconciled to God and brought back into his presence because of his death and resurrection. The God-man has atoned for our sins to bring us back into the presence of God, which was the meaning of the temple in order to reset the world the way it's supposed to be, all accomplished through Jesus Christ. But is he not also talking about the end of the world also? How do we make sense of verse 26? Verse 26 is quite critical. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This seems to be a clear articulation of the return of Jesus Christ. So how can it be about the cross? Because Jesus didn't return at the cross. Jesus returns in the future. So I want to be clear about this. Jesus will return, 1 Thessalonians 4, Several times in the book of Revelation we learned about this. Jesus will return, and he will come in with clouds. However, what's curious here is that verse 26 does not say where Jesus is going. Do you notice that? It just says the Son of Man is coming in clouds. Coming or going where? The word coming suggests he's coming from another place, like let's say heaven, and coming here. But turn, keep, your, keep your finger here in Mark 13 and turn back to Daniel chapter 7. Turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible with you right now, just tuck that away. Daniel 7, go read it later today and listen carefully. This is Daniel. The context here the people of God are greatly persecuted by the rulers of the earth. Sounds similar to Mark 13, doesn't it? The followers of Jesus being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And this is what Daniel sees. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So the clouds of heaven, 
son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, verse 13. One come who's like the son of man, he's on the clouds of heaven and he comes up to the ancient of days. He doesn't leave the ancient of days to come to earth. He comes from the earth into the presence of the ancient of days. In other words, the Son of Man in Daniel 7 goes from earth to heaven. And in heaven, he is given authority to rule the earth. That is the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is raised and later ascends on the day of, the, well, not the day of Pentecost, but shortly before Pentecost, Jesus ascends to heaven and the Lord gives him authority to rule the nations, and his kingdom will never end. In fact, in the book of Matthew, he says so much. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. So in Mark 13, verse 26, is Jesus talking about going from earth, coming from earth to heaven, or coming from heaven to earth? I think it's from earth to heaven. He's talking about his resurrection. That even though he will be persecuted and his tribulation will be greater than any tribulation there ever was from the beginning of time, nonetheless, God will raise him from the dead. The reason I'm confident of this is if you turn over to chapter uh, 1462, 1462, this is actually what gets Jesus killed. 1462, Jesus says to the high priest on his trial, he says, uh, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He tells the high priest, there, that day, you will see it. So he can't be talking about 2,000 years into the future, can he? He's saying, you will see me vindicated through my persecution and coming into the presence of God to receive power and authority and glory to rule the nation. And that has been the status of world history ever since. That Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, ruling the nations through his word and through his people. Bringing in, as it says in Mark 13 several times, bringing in the elect from the four corners of the earth. And so to recap, Jesus is talking about the original purposes of creation, the reason why Israel had a temple, the meaning of his life, the true temple of God, and the distant future. Because Jesus will come again. So what we have in the coming of the clouds of heaven, Jesus goes to heaven in a cloud. You can read about that in Acts chapter 1. Jesus goes to heaven in a cloud. So he comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and he will come back in a cloud. In fact, he says exactly the way you saw him go, he will come back. So the coming and going from heaven on the clouds is representative of Jesus' reign right now and when he returns. Now you may say to yourself, well, that's really convenient. You didn't take the R.C. Sproul approach. You didn't take the John MacArthur approach. You kind of you said, it's both of them. Well, it is. And this is actually very common in the Bible. 
that, that prophets especially will talk about several events in one breath without really telling you when, when are you changing from one event to the other, right? So Joel talks about a locust plague and the army of Babylon and the day of the Lord, which Peter says is fulfilled at the day of Pentecost. So boom, 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 boom. Four things, all at once, Joel's talking about. Amos does the same thing. He talks about an earthquake and another earthquake and then the day of the Lord. And James, in chapter 15 of Acts, Acts 15, says, oh, he's talking about the influx of the Gentiles into the people of God. So there you go. Amos is talking about several things all at once because they're theologically aligned. And that's the point I'm making. The original goal of creation and the temple all meet their climax and fulfillment in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's what this means for us. Three things. Three points of application, if I may. I can't believe I'm going to finish this sermon on time. (laughs) Number one. Jesus' death and resurrection culminate God's purposes for the world and provide meaning to life. The meaning of life. Again, why is there something instead of nothing? You ever thought about that? There is something. There is time and space and history and matter. But why? Did God have to create? God created to glorify himself in the created order and principally through his creatures made in his image, human beings. And so if you are a human being, the reason God made you is to have a relationship with him and to glorify him through your life in this earth and to live forever. Honestly, I don't know how people survive in this world without that understanding. The alternative is either in Eastern religions, time doesn't really exist and it's all an illusion. Well, that's one option. The other option is that you're just a random collection of organic matter that happened to form through blind evolutionary forces and someday those organic pieces of matter will also decompose back into the earth and it will always be as though it never happened. Your loves, your passions, your hopes, your dreams are all just electrons shooting across your brain. They don't really mean anything. That's the alternative. But this says God created you to have a relationship with him that was lost because of sin and prepared through Israel's temple, now climaxed in Jesus, who died for your sins and is raised to the right hand of God to invite you into that space as well through faith and obedience in his name. And he actually rules all history, and so therefore nothing ever happens by chance. That's why he can be so confident. Even when they persecute you, God will preserve you. God will protect you. God will give you what to say. That's number one. Number two, there's a direct link, is there not, between Jesus' suffering and our suffering. He will face a great tribulation on the cross. We will face something a little less, but nonetheless real. To put it another way, the pattern of the life of the Messiah is the pattern of the life of the church. He's a suffering Messiah. We are a suffering people. We want glory. We want health. We want wealth. But the glory comes after the suffering. And so if you're called to be a Christian, you're called to follow him in forms of self-sacrifice, a willingness to, to suffer with, with, with a good attitude, and dare I say, with thanksgiving, 
because nothing happens by accident, so that your reward will be great when the glory finally comes. Did you not hear Pastor Scott talk about taking up your cross and following Jesus so that when he returns in the glory of his angels, he will not be ashamed of you because you identified with his cross, with his sufferings. But remember, God will preserve his elect. Verse 22, the false Christs, the false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Equally, verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being will be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he will shorten those days. The whole point here is that despite the greatness of this tribulation, God is with his people and will preserve them. And the classic example is, of course, Peter. Peter will face a great trial in the coming chapters that he will deny the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus will also forgive him and welcome him back. And then finally, number three, we have a mission. We have a mission. We have a mission. To, as it says in verses 9 and 10, if you're delivered over to councils, beaten in the synagogues, you stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. To the end, verse 10, that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. In short, open up your mouth. Tell your neighbors. Tell your coworkers. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies that Jesus is Lord. The meaning of time, space, the universe, and everything revolves around Jesus Christ. And I would love to tell you about him. You can have a relationship with God, but because of your sin, you don't. But Jesus provides atonement, forgiveness of your sins, and resurrection. He is alive today and promises you as well eternal life for those who have faith and follow him. As I mentioned, apocalyptic imagery, whether it's in the Old Testament, there's a lot in the Old Testament, or Revelation or right here, is intentionally opaque so that a few things pop out clearly. Sometimes on a Zoom call, you may have a friend, or maybe you do this yourself, who does a fuzzy background. You, you've seen those fuzzy backgrounds? And I always thought, you know, they're doing that because their office is messy, and they're trying to hide that. Maybe. But it also means that their face is more clear. So boom, nothing, nothing distracted. There they are. Everything else opaque, so there they are. Jesus is talking in some opaque language in, in chapter 13, so that what is clear will pop all the more. As I suffered and redeemed the world, my people are called to the same. But just as God raises me from the dead, he will raise you from the dead. And he gives me authority to rule the nations and I will protect my people, I'll protect my elect throughout their witnessing mission to the world. There are a lot of other details that could be explored in Mark 13 but that's what's supposed to pop for the people of God, to prepare them for when Jesus dies, don't look at that like he's defeated. He's atoning for sins. When he's raised, he rules the nations. And when the church is persecuted, made fun of, maligned, or whatever, yeah, let them. Jesus said, I'm not surprised by that. They treat you the way they treated me. But here's the truth. You're actually saving those people 
even though they ridicule you and persecute you because you're giving them the life-saving good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope good people of Stones Crossing will live for this week and going forward. Let me pray for us one more time. Lord Jesus, we, we tremble before your word because, we, again, we confess that we are greatly limited, especially in our sinfulness and any other thing that distracts us from hearing your word. I pray all the same that right now that what is a good and true and beautiful I've spoken from Mark 13, you would plant in the heart of these good people so that they may endure whatever in your providence you have for them. Indeed, you will preserve them. They will have confidence in that and that they will be eager enthusiastic to open up their mouths and speak the gospel to the world for the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.